Hello. This is Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today as our guest, we have Michaela Gallucci. Michaela is a trans scientist, engineer, and inventor who is currently working at Sanofi to develop next-generation technology for therapeutic production. Her passion, however, is in climate science, and she moonlights as the founder and developer of stateoftheclimate.org, a website that uses data-driven approaches to guide climate policy. In her spare time, she also runs a YouTube channel called Is It Michaela, where she makes videos about robotics, climate science, and showcases her inventions. Michaela, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. So the first thing that we normally ask our guests is just, how did you get interested in science? How did you get started in science? My first exposure to science was just sort of in chemistry with my teachers. Like it wasn't, it was definitely not the like, from like I was born, I was like super good at it and like had a passion for it. It was more just like, oh, like, yeah, like, sure, I'll try this and like keep doing it. I have to say though, the introduction of like the Marvel movies and Iron Man really like was kind of the turning point in my, in my like desire to like build stuff because it was just so cool looking. So that was like the first time that like being nerdy was like portrayed as cool that I saw in movies. And I was like, wow, this is great. Like I feel this feels like it's, you know, moving me. So I decided to go into science in college. And in terms of the kind of science, I was originally going for chemical engineering, which is traditionally like a super like process oriented like oil roll for like oil rigs and stuff. Cause that's like traditionally like a lot of what the people in my college would go for. But like I did really like the environment and I didn't have a great like heart feeling about that. So I uh, ended up trying to go into bio, which was like the other major career path for chemies. And I ended up uh, going to grad school for my PhD, ended up leaving with my master's. Uh, PhD was not for me. Uh, it was too sort of narrow and too focused and I'm, I'm way too all over the place as you could probably tell by like my bio. Like I just, I like doing too many different things to ever focus on one. Valid. So, so I, I wasn't cut out for the PhD life at all. Well, I have <laughs> two immediate responses. So the first one is that it, it kind of feels like studying chemistry and then having to go work on an oil rig feels not dissimilar to me as being an entomologist and then having to go work in pest control mm. where you you have to just kill the thing that you love. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And secondly, I do actually think I mean it's nice to have somebody who has an example of starting a PhD program, completing part of it and realizing as I don't I'm, I don't want to spend six years doing this. Mm. It's true, yeah. Well, it's a nice, like, counterexample to sort of the feeling that you have to just keep going forever, regardless of, you know, personal feeling. Oh, yeah. Like, like quit things. Like, that's, like, my biggest advice is, like, move on. Like, I, it was actually really interesting because my transition was a huge reason for that decision. Because at about that time was sort of when I came out and was, like, starting that transition process. And, like, that was that had a lot of of farewells involved you know a farewell to like my identity a farewell to my fiance because like we weren't like sexually compatible anymore um because of that transition um just a farewell to a lot of things and i found myself in the phd program very much like i was in the gender that i was assigned just like slogging through it like trying to make trade-offs trying to make sacrifices because someone said that i should be doing this and eventually I was like, I don't actually have to do any of this, actually. I, I don't have to do anything. So I was like, I'm going to try to like strike out on my own and like figure out what like really, really motivates me. And like, that's mm. how I got involved in climate science. That's how State of the Climate happened. And it's it's really been opening so many doors 
that would never have opened if I just like did <laughs> did what 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 I was quote unquote supposed to do. I mean, I think the real lesson here is transition and uh, also do whatever you want. Yeah, do whatever you want. <laughs> do whatever you want. We're all gonna die. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh dear. Well, so then, what was sort of next steps after you finished the master's part of your PhD program? That was that was actually that was just a very 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 stressful time in my life because in the PhD program, I was actually um, I, I wish I could say that I like came to that decision on my own, but it was it was it was after a lot of sort of struggling because the nature of a PhD was just not cut out for my brain, as like I mentioned before, like I'm way too scattered. And like now I'm owning that and like using that to my advantage. But before, like I, I was trying to fit myself into this like mental mold I couldn't fit in. And so I wasn't like my my theses were were not something my advisor was satisfied with. I kept having to redo it. I like conditionally passed my entrance exams, which just meant that like you get to stay, but you have to do this extra work and try to take the test again next year and see if you're good enough. So it was just a lot of that. And eventually I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm just going to take my master's and, and peace. And so after that, that was during like my transition time. So really the first objective was like, get a job because I had like two months of like stipend left and I didn't have any job leads. <laughs> so I was like, all right, like I, I'm going to need to pay for food. So I'm going to need to just like get whatever job I can get. Like my, my uh, I was not in the space of like follow my heart passions yet. I was more just like stabilize. So yeah, I have to keep eating to food annoyingly yeah, that's day. next on my list to fix <laughs> <laughs> so finding a job stressful time we all have to eat every day it's a real slog yeah but i managed to do it i uh, managed to get a job at sanofi as like a process engineer which was pretty much what my my degree and job was cut out for and my bio my bio work that i had done for my master's was like very it was impressive enough to be able to go into their bio divisions so then i started doing like working on process development and for for the non-engineers uh, that really just means you know there's the science on how to make the thing and then there's the science on how to make the thing in quotes and so it's like the drug might have might be developed and we might know exactly how to synthesize it but how do you manufacture it at scale how do you create enough of it how do you do it in a way that doesn't overheat things that everyone knows it's good that is standardized that it's not that it's safe outside of the lab so like that's that was where i kind of was and i was working on different technologies to help them make that process easier uh, make that process like safer. Um, and I was more on the technological end. So I was doing a lot of like mathematical modeling on our data and like using different like probe types to try to like get more information. And so that's sort of what I'm what I do for for my day job. So why climate? That's a great question. So what I love the most personally about like engineering, like chemical engineering in particular, is that it really like changes the way you see literally everything and you realize like how much you can think about in terms of engineering and in terms of like your your studies. Hey, like you can actually apply engineering to like a lot of different things. I love the climate always. And it was one of those things I found myself thinking about after work, like during work, like during lunch breaks. I had a whole journal filled up with like different ideas about stuff because it's one of the probably most pressing engineering challenges of our time, in my opinion is like, like, this is the thing. Like, this is like the defining engineering challenge of the generation. Oh, I don't know if just like a constant existential threat is that big of a and deal. That's you. That's you. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, it's it's something. And it's it, I'm the type of person where it's like, I, I think about those sort of existential threats a lot. And like the best way I respond is just by trying to come up with ideas for it. That's just like how I deal with it. Eventually, I like came up with this idea of using that that engineering idea of tracking stuff going in and out and treating countries and treating the world like a giant chemical reactor and using those principles to understand like how to best target and understand the climate problem and fix it. And so that's kind of where the inspiration for State of the Climate came about. You mentioned like doing a lot of modeling. Out of curiosity, like what sort of specific type of modeling do you use? It sounded a lot like, and this is speaking of someone who has a distant background in ecological modeling, like uh, doing system dynamics modeling, where you have boxes of or heaps of things, and then you have the rates of transfer between those. Yeah, boxes. yeah, that's sort of the modeling paradigm that that chemical engineers use. Because, like, again, we're a lot of us are our uh, our jobs are to like design like reactor systems and processes and processes are just a bunch of boxes (laughs) that have reactions in them flowing from one thing to another and you do that for heat you do it for chemicals you do it for chemical species you just it's like accounting but for physics and that's sort of like the basis of everything but as i've as i've sort of like in my graduate career and and my job i've sort of dabbled in different types of machine learning as well uh, so like Monte Carlo simulations, and I've also looked at partially squares regression. I've read a little bit about machine learning in my own time, but I'm I'm definitely not an expert on that. I know a very, very base <laughs> knowledge of that. But What are you hoping will come from State of the Climate? It started out as just an idea. And I, the more people I've been talking to about it, the more interest there sort of is in it. And right now, I think it's just a really great website and resource for people to understand what parts of our country, and ho- and soon as I expand it, like what countries and like what parts of the world like really need to be targeted to make the difference that we need. What I'm hoping is for sort of a gra- at a grassroots level, people can say like, I really want to like be more active and like help climate change, but I don't know what the best use of my time will be, and I don't know what the best places to focus on will be. Do I? To call my senators about, you know, renewable electricity? Do I try to drive less? Is that going to make a difference? Like, do I commute? Le- like, what are what are the solutions? Because I feel like a huge part of the problem, at least in our culture, like in, in America right now, is a sense of overwhelming feeling and sort of a sense of hopelessness because there's just so much to tackle. And it seems too big for any one person and for any one country. So I would just love for it to be a place to like, like strategize and understand what the key pieces are. And a long way down the road, I would love for it to turn into like a nonprofit organization where donations and money that we get for our work um, can be sort of sent to the places where they'll make the most difference, uh, depending on, you know, what locations have the biggest issues. It'd be sort of like a clearinghouse for sort of like money and climate resources that can make the biggest difference with the lowest effort, basically. Mm. That, that's actually something I was going to ask is, do you consider yourself, I guess, an optimist facing the challenges that we are that come with climate change and all the associated issues that that brings? And if so, how do you kind of like preserve that optimism? Because I know like the burnout factor mm. is real. Yeah, that's that's been a really hard thing to deal with. And, and especially as I'm learning more about all of the challenges, it can get really hard to remain optimistic because of the sheer scope and scale 
of the problem. And I totally understand why it's such a hard thing to like remain optimistic about just because of that huge overwhelming feeling. But I think that I, I'm I'm sort of in the business of like ideas and like just trying to find solutions. And to me, like whatever helps me do that is what I want to try to cultivate. And I found that if I'm overly pessimistic about the problem, my fear response leads me towards inaction. If I look at the problem as something that is really difficult and we might fail, but here's everything we can do right now and we should give it the best shot that we can do, that leads me towards action. And that leads me towards like not regretting something that I could do or something that I could think about. Plus, I've watched way too many Marvel movies to not give it a shot. <laughs> They're in- That's fair. I think I think optimism really does help not only come up with ideas because you can't come up with an idea if you don't think there's a reason to think about it and to think about a solution. But I also think it just helps people accept where they are even if it's not great and like even if it's not where we want to be. And once we can like accept where we are, we can not only find those maybe imaginative solutions but help other people and like be in a spot where like okay, like this is not going to be great. We're reaching this point where it's going to start hurting people. How do we guard against that? How do we protect marginalized communities? How do we protect low-income communities? Like what what do we need to do now? So I'm just all about trying to figure out the best mental state to give me the most advantage in trying to help as I can. <laughs> I mean, as a <laughs> As a natural fatalist, I admire that. <laughs> it might be a lost cause, but it's the only way I know how to th- how to do things. <laughs> Listen, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I get that because, like, I know that I tend to be much more of an optimistic person because I know if I'm not, I basically just end up turning into this ball of despair and it's kind of like, why do I even get out of bed in the Mm. morning? You know, there's no point to anything. So, you know, I I totally relate to like powering through that because, you know, as you say, what other choice do you have? It's like that Gandalf quote. What was it? So do all who live to see such times, but that's not for us to decide. I love that quote so much. Right. Yeah. No, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Shout out to Ian McKellen. Yes. <laughs> for not being a turf. Yep. Thank you, Ian McKellen. Is there anything sort of in the climate world or the discourse that you're particularly excited or hopeful yeah, about? Yeah. Um, so so with this sort of idea, I've made a lot of connections and I've actually been accepted as a, a US climate ambassador for the World Bank um in their in their climate change, their youth climate change program, um, which is a huge honor. And we're it's actually a collection of one or one or two uh, ambassadors from over a hundred different countries all over the world that are climate activists that are trying to figure out ways to help. And I think just the most optimistic thing I'm seeing is just how many truly passionate people there are working on this stuff behind the scenes. Just even people coming from, you know, countries that are so routinely battered by typhoons and the typhoons are getting worse and it's such a dire situation. They're turning that into like this incredible strength and resilience to spread the word about climate change is honestly the thing that's making me so excited to to keep pursuing this because there there are so many people and they're so smart and they're so intelligent um, that are working on this problem. And I think we just need to keep the conversation going, keep the momentum going and provide just like avenues for people to take that action at whatever level they want to take it. And that would give us the best shot, I hope. (laughs) Well, related to that, are there any developments either in policy or in technology regarding climate change that are like really solidly helping things? Yeah, I I think so. I think that 
the the market for renewable energy, for example, is doing really, really well. Um, in Massachusetts, for example, um, they're they're pledging to try to have over 60% of our grid from renewables. And I actually opted into a program to convert to a solar powered electrical grid that with at no cost to me at no extra effort they I just signed a paper and the company that the electric company just like got their power from renewables which is great and there's a lot of other countries that are really like working on that climate commitment. So for example, I think China is pledging to have 50% renewables by the end of the decade. So that's that's something to look forward to. I think in America it's it's definitely more of a grassroots problem than like a top-down problem. So I think that we just need to disseminate the information more to the public and let them know, hey, like these are your resources for signing up for renewable electricity. Here's your avenues to talk to your governors and say that this is an important issue. So I think things are impressively, impressively good, even despite the shock that is COVID. Like, that's really cool. That's the coolest thing to me is like, even though COVID is completely upending our entire way of life, the push for doing things the right way and sustainably is still is still strong. So I think that's sort of a testament to how much people really want this. Hmm. I mean, it's nice to have optimism on the show sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a relentless optimist. I, it's insufferable sometimes. <laughs> Cannot imagine what that's like, but I'm very happy for you. Um, yeah, well, then I guess I would ask sort of what are your next steps? Like, where do you want to go from here? So I am looking to try to just really keep fleshing out the State of the Climate website. I want to have more resources. I want to have more like action plans for people to go to and and be able to take that direct action. I would like to expand and I'm working on um, expanding it into a global a global website. So instead of just seeing the United States as a heat map, you would see like the entire world as a heat heat map with all the problem points and you could like click into a country and and sort of see what parts of that country are and what sectors are responsible so you can like target solutions. So I, I have a lot of big plans for the website, but I think like in the immediate future, just trying to start small, start with different programs and like different small little resources that I can provide people with and then sort of keep making connections, keep growing the network and just like seeing where it goes. I'm a very big believer in like just trying stuff. And it's like, just keep trying things and like stuff like clicks and like doors open and just like things end up happening because you're exploring a space that you usually wouldn't. So I keep my, I keep my goals like kind of very open in that way. So I'm just going to keep doing it, (laughs) trying stuff and seeing what happens really. (laughs) Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Just do it. Just do it. Just just keep doing stuff. (laughs) Just do it. (laughs) Doesn't matter. And that's ours now. Get out of here, Nike. Exactly. Actually, there is there is one thing I, w- I would love to sort of call attention to just for anybody listening is um, from my I've been researching a lot about uh, nuclear power and how important nuclear energy is going to be in the future, because right now, though, renewable energy is, is becoming more and more ingrained. We don't have the energy storage technology to actually keep that going in areas where you might not get as much sun or you might not, you know, during the nighttime, for example. It's just we don't have that infrastructure. But uh, nuclear energy has provided like 20%, actually, of our entire nation's energy for the past like 30, 30 years. And there's going to be a lot of plants in the coming years that are going to be decommissioned because they're so old. And because there's not a lot, there's a lot of big spotlight on renewables, but not so much on nuclear. But a lot of climate experts are essentially saying that, look, like nuclear is going to need to be around to supplement the gap 
when, you know, the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing. And that's the only other source of, like, clean energy that we have. So if if that is something that you research and that's something that you feel like is, is comfortable and you would want to advocate for, certainly make a call to your governors, make a call to your state representatives, and let them know if there's any nuclear plants in your state that might be going out of commission to, to try to get the resources together to keep those running or to, to renew those plants. Um, because I think it's as as those do get decommissioned, we're going to be seeing a more of a reliance on natural gas and oil to replace that, that energy output that we're going to lose. So it's something that's going to be more of a big deal in the coming years. Well, I'm interested what clean means in this context, because when I think of nuclear energy, because as mentioned, I am a fatalist, the first thing I think about is toxic waste. So there's actually, there's tech and research going into trying to reuse that um, for just more nuclear energy. So there's there's definitely, and there's progress being made sort of in those spaces. It's not scalable yet, but there the science is is there. I guess it depends on how you dispose it, really, because the waste, you know, usually it gets put in like these big cement blocks, which means they're sort of, you can't, the environment isn't really affected on them beyond beyond the blocks. And especially if we can learn out learn how to recycle that, which I'm, I'm, I'm very confident that we'll be able to do because it's already being worked on. Um, I think it could be a very like a very promising supplement. And as we progress through our societal like change to green energy, as storage technologies for renewables become better, as we learn how to store the batter- store energy in a battery, our batteries get better, as solar energy becomes more efficient, we'll probably be able to rely on that less and less. But I sort of see nuclear as like a stepping stone slash like filler energy system. Hmm. It's it's not the spotlight. It's not the major player. But if we want to divest from fossil fuels completely, it's going to need to support that transition. Could you also just very clearly sort of delineate the clean, unclean dichotomy here? Does that make sense? Like what makes something quote-unquote clean energy yeah yeah so the 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 sort of definition i'm using is that clean energy is is a result is is energy that does not emit uh greenhouse gases and and sort of contribute to the climate change effect that we're seeing there's there's clean in the atmospheric sense and then clean in the the ecological sense i think nuclear can certainly be clean in both senses but it's just a matter of holding the companies accountable for proper waste management Mm. you know um, which, of course, <laughs> I mean, that's not, <laughs> it's definitely not, uh, they don't have a great track record in history, but yeah, it's, that's something that we need to really keep a watchful eye on as we like explore some of these technologies. Yeah. And <clears throat> for anyone interested, we did actually interview a chemical engineer pretty early on who works in battery storage for like in the area of renewable energy storage and that will be linked in the show notes okay so robots robots i love robots <laughs> well how did you get into amateur robotics it was actually only a kind of a few years ago it started i think it started at the start of covid actually i was just like just thinking about, you know, the piece like COVID tests and the unavailability of it. And I was like, how do you actually make one? And so I was like researching it. And I'm a, I'm a very like project based learner. I absolutely despise reading instructions. I do not like reading like intro to books or theory books. I learn by just like trying to do something and it like messes up or blows up. And then I'm like, all right, learn that. And like, let's try it again, like a different way. 
Um, so I just started like trying to make things and like Googling stuff, like how to make this circuit, like how to do this. And it started out with like a little project, like a little, uh, like a little heating circuit for like a little like at home bioreactor I wanted to try to make. And then it just expanded like, oh, like, how do I make a clock? Like, how would I do this? How would I do that? And now it's just, I can like take different parts of what I've learned and just like make new stuff. So I really just start, honestly, TLDR, I just started Googling it and <laughs> figuring it out from there. <laughs> Listen, we're living in a real golden age for people who just want to learn how to do random stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So PCR, at home tinkering, we're all going wild with COVID robots. Pretty much. That's that's how it went. Just a lot of quarantine and a yeah. lot of time. <laughs> well, I would just ad- advise you to guard your heart because before you know it, your robot's going to have a whole human body and they're going to have a face and you're going to program <laughs> them a personality. And you're just if you don't if you aren't careful, you're just going to fall in love. Oh, man, that I, I that's that's the danger. <laughs> I mean, I already lo- I, I love my little arm robot so much. Well, See? So cute. On the other hand, what a great, like, COVID love. You know, because early on, when everybody was still, like, really locked down, there were multiple stories that came out of, like, our relationships of, like, I think I'm in love with my roommate. We're, like, stuck together, (laughs) and we're falling in love. Yep, yep. Tessa, do you know these? I've seen more than a few of them, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of them were gay, and that was great. Uh, (laughs) So just, like, imagine the great COVID love story of I created my new paramour. Although, on the other hand, the ethics of creating your paramour are very complicated. Very, very complicated. And it's a whole lot of, like, you know, programming their personality. It's like, is that? Yeah, that's that's just a lot. That's a rabbit hole, (laughs) for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. But as someone who's never had a pet, uh, really, besides some goldfish when I was a kid, they really, honestly, I swear, I swear, my robots feel like pets now. I, I, I like, I play with them and like I pet them and stuff, and it, and I'm just like, what am I doing? But like, they're so cute. <laughs> like, it's like a little pupper. Do you have a favorite? Honestly, yeah, I love, I love Quentin. Quentin's the it's short for Quarantine Entertainment Instrument, <laughs> and he's just a doof. He's just great. He just chills. He does his thing. He's like a little arm that's just like on the table looking around. He can play with the little foam dice. Like he's just low maintenance. He's chill, but he like gets really hyperactive sometimes. He's, he's a great, he's a great little robot. So <laughs> how autonomous are your robots? <laughs> not super right now. Um, I have not dipped into like very high level AI from them, but they're really, they're in like the very infant stages of like being able to respond to stimuli, react to stimuli, but also just like move around the world in a pseudo pseudo random way based on their their stimuli what they can see and hear so i'm hoping to make them more intelligent as i learn more about robotics and well, stuff. <laughs> guard your heart yeah <laughs> that's all i'll say well actually this is a great opportunity to just ask all of us would you fall in love with a robot on the robot really well expand well it's tessa do you know what podcast you're on expand on this <laughs> oh I, I mean it would depend on their personality first and foremost somewhat in terms of their physical embodiment i mean you know if they're i don't know covered in spikes that would probably make things difficult mm. well i want to um, add a twist to this and 
Would you like to tell yet another guest of your retirement plans? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so my wife and I's ultimate retirement pr- plan is to upload our consciousnesses, preferably using a system that um, preserves continuity of consciousness, or otherwise I feel like it doesn't count, but that's a whole other discussion. It's a discussion that we had. Into... Episode six? Yeah. Um, into a, a um, basically a, a spacecraft, interstellar spacecraft, and spend the rest of eternity exploring I the galaxy. That. That's a great plan. (laughs) Well, see, here's my new twist. You come on like a sentient robot in your little galaxy pod. You know, just like, what if one of you fell in love with the robot and not the other one? Oh, I mean, we're nominally, well, actually, we're not just nominally. We're poly, so I'm sure we'd find some Mm -hmm. way to work it out. Mm -hmm. That is such an interesting question. (laughs) Because, yeah, I guess, like, if you do upload your consciousness into any type of machine right i mean you could you could engine you could build in nerve endings right so like you have the sensation like of touch but like the relationship with the body has to be so different depending on like what sensor like what you're what you are what you are made of and so does fit like does the idea of physical love change if you're now a robot like is it purely a cerebral bond like well that's that's the other thing i was wondering about is that you know depending on the amount of like storage space and processing power we have at our capability, you know, the physical embodiment may not always matter because you can always like just create a virtual simulation of whatever body you would like, mm. you know, and, you know, hang out there if like you didn't think the physical form was all that fetching. Well, here's a new wrinkle in your little galaxy pod. Let's say that you uploaded both of your physical brains. Could you imagine given the opportunity removing yourself from the galaxy pod into more identifiably like bipedal robot bodies uh potentially yeah if the situation called for mm. it and then would you fall in love with another robot <laughs> um again depends on the personality of the robot involved because i guess when you can change your physical form physical right like that's like the thing it's like you're not you're yeah. not like attracted to a body anymore it's like it's just the personality <laughs> I guess. I mean, Mikhail, do how do you feel about robot love? <laughs> I have, I have honestly, I, so have you seen the movie Her? Yes. Yeah. So like that, that was like a mind blowing movie for me. Cause I never thought about that type of thing before I watched that movie. And I was like, wow, like what is love? Like what's happening? Like, like all this, all this like very like existential stuff. And I, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like love is like kind of, very abstract and it's it's really up to the person to really define what it means for them and but the thing that i feel about about like robotic love is like i feel like it has to be like consensual Mm. so like i feel if there's any sort of love that has to happen between two beings whatever they are i feel like both beings have to a be capable of defining what love is for them and b feel it for the other person too or being as well Mm. So, like, I feel like the ethics of, like, building a robot that doesn't really have agency to fall in love with, like, I, that's, that's like, that's, like, hazy territory for me. Like, I don't think that would be something I would want to do. Yeah. Well, how about this juicy hypothetical? Somebody else makes themselves a weird love bot. Then that relationship fails. And then you meet that robot and you fall in love. <laughs> if that's the case... And they're, they're like able to like, like, as I said, like, you know, 
they're able to fall in love with me as well. Honestly, in that weird hypothetical, I think about it. I think mm. about it. Because <laughs> they were programmed to love slash, in parentheses, have sex with a specific person. Right. But you're not that person, and you didn't right. do it. And I didn't do it. And you didn't do it. Well, I mean, that would also suggest agency on part of the robot, if it's able to decide that, oh, yeah, sure, I'm programmed to love this person, but it's just not really working out for me, so I'm going to go, you know, hang out with Michaela instead. Mm-hmm. Mm. I would, de- for my part, I would absolutely, hands down, I would not just date a robot, I would prefer to date a robot. Because here's the thing, can't sterilize the human body. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. There is something to be said There's for that. There's something to be said. Plus, robots can't get anybody pregnant. Yet. Yet. <laughs> that is true. That is true. God, imagine having an accidental pregnancy with a robot. Wouldn't that be embarrassing? <laughs> That'd be so embarrassing. Well, because imagine the future. Hope we're all imagining. Let's say, what if they made, because I don't know that I've ever seen this hypothetical of like sex bots, but not prurient, but in like IVF clinics. Mm. Oh. That's an interesting, huh? Yeah. And is it better or worse if the sex bot has some self-awareness. Well, that gets into the question of, like, responsibility and free will. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. I think my only... I think my one reservation just about, like... Because I I feel like like loving another, like, living, like, non-robotic organism is, like, tethering me back to my humanity. Because if not, I would so turn into a robot at, like, a moment's notice. (laughs) So it's like I feel like I want I would I, I want to retain like some shred of it. So that's like where the love comes in. So I'd probably if if I had the choice, I'd probably prefer to I'd prefer to be with a human being. But yeah, I guess it depends because I I think as robotics gets more advanced, they're just they'll think more like humans, and they already are. They're a lot better than us in some ways. So it's a weird question. I love it. <laughs> I've been reading um, the Murderbot Diaries, and they're not about a sex bot, but there are references to sex bots in that series. Mm. So I've been thinking about sex bot ethics, because it's a tough life, or non-life, depending on your (laughs) parameterizations of life. Right, exactly. And the question is, like, when you make a robot, it's like, if you predefine what they like, and they say they like it, do they actually like it? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or, yeah. do, or like, is the only ethical way to do this to create a series of blank slate baby robots and have their neural, like have their neural networks just be defined randomly like humans and then come to that. Let them organically develop. Yeah. 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 Well, then that brings into it. If you, cause robots can't like physically grow yet. Maybe in the weird galaxy that Tessa goes to in her retirement pod, <laughs> maybe there, <laughs> But because if you start out like an adult looking robot with baby brain blank slate, A, you're getting into the question of whether like organic life actually starts out with a blank slate, which is like a whole thing. Mm -hmm. And then also the development of experiences that they'll have will not be the same because they aren't like physically growing 
and developing that way. They're starting off in their, you know, adult humanoid body and then going from there. Yeah, that's true. Unless, like, you can start them with a rudimentary, a rudimentary, like, baby robot body and then add certain, like, developmental markers transfer them to a like a new one (laughs) Mm. during the teenage years you upload just there's just a whole bunch of like random number generators that just spit out mood swings like they don't know (laughs) what's going on anymore like (laughs) they're just like what's happening to me i would never be a teenager again oh yeah all the money in the world what a miserable time of life puberty 2.0 has not been fun (laughs) (laughs) well (laughs) fair The final thing that we do with these interviews is that we like to ask our guests to weigh in on one of our recurring themes. And I sent you these questions ahead of time. And so are there any that you would like to answer? So I love hypothetical apocalyptic event scenarios. So the the one where it says, assuming some global apocalyptic event, we normally go catastrophic global warming, which makes sense. What do you think you'd be doing in the aftermath? And like, I would totally be like a junkyard, like tech scrounger. Like making like, like really, really jank, like walkie talkies or like, like different, like, like trying to hold like pieces of the internet together (laughs) for Mm. like people or like whatever, whatever hub that I'm like, I'm a part of or something. Um, So yeah, that would, that would absolutely be my preferred role. God, Junkyard Scrounger is such a good one. Mm -hmm. Cause you're like kind of gross you know, because you're covered in dirt and you smell weird, but you have like have great inventions. That's a really good one. We haven't gotten yeah. that one before. Yeah, we yeah, like haven't. Super I'm... steampunk, like steampunk, like like uh, just exploring like old labs, like rummaging, like looting old labs for like different parts and mm. <laughs> like going to different places and trying to get what I need and just to like. I'm sure in this apocalyptic world, there's like a resistance and like people who are hoarding the resources. So I would hopefully be on. Well, the I guess it depends on side. yeah on how many people have died, which we don't True. normally get into. That's dark. Yeah. Well, that's a hard question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's an apocalypse, so I would imagine a lot. Yeah. Like otherwise, it wouldn't really be one. <sighs> I'm imagining no internet in the future because I also don't know how the internet works. <laughs> I know there are cables somewhere. Yeah, it's basically just transfer. Like the internet doesn't like exist. It's just like it's transferring data to and from different places. So mm. it, there is no one place for the internet. It's just a way to send stuff to different places. So like hack into an old cell tower, maybe like get like a a short like multi mile internet radius of connectivity (laughs) maybe steal some old hard drive store some data on there like (laughs) i don't know but it'd be really interesting to try to build the internet again (laughs) Mm. i can just imagine like starting like seeing like the world start to crumble or whatever for the apocalypse and just like downloading as much data as you can about human knowledge into just like as many hard drives as you can get your hands on Mm. throwing them in like a truck well see this is <laughs> interesting like safeguarding them. yeah because one of my favorite post-apocalyptic novels which we haven't mentioned on here before is a canticle for Leibowitz. have you ever read this Mm-mm. it's re- well i don't actually know if it's good i read it as an undergrad and i was like yes 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 
Monks, <laughs> Apocalypse. Yes. But I don't know if I reread it now, if I would think that it was really good. But it's uh, it's about like the circularity of like the cyclical nature of human society and whatever. And A Canticle for Leibowitz is interesting because there's like a massive apocalypse. I think it's like nuclear. It, yeah, nuclear war. The flame deluge. Yeah, nuclear war because that was what everybody was writing apocalypses about at the time. Mm-hmm. And essentially human society has to start mostly over again, except that they have like a lot of blueprints and stuff so like there's a whole monastic order around like illuminating scripts by Leibowitz who is like an engineer and so there's a rebuilding of human society back up from these very basic like leftover technical manuals that is awesome oh it's, my gosh I gotta read that yeah it's really that. good <laughs> I gotta reread a canticle for Leibowitz because all I've ever because I've routinely fantasized about being a monk so i was really and i love post-apocalyptic fiction i because i don't love apocalyptic fiction i don't like reading as people go through the apocalypse because that stresses me out i like post-apocalyptic once people are like in the rebuilding stages you know what series you would probably really appreciate lx beckett's game changer i will look into that So, Michaela, if people want to find out more about you or the work that you do, where should they look? Um, so my the website for the climate change uh, is stateoftheclimate.org. And uh, my YouTube channel is Is It Michaela? Uh, I-Z-Z-I-T. And then my first name, Michaela, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-A. And um, yeah, if you want to follow me on Twitter, my address is the same as my YouTube channel, Is It Michaela? And yeah, you can keep up to date on everything that I'm doing. So, Is It Michaela? Yes. It is. <laughs> it's a reference to the Magic the Gathering color, red blue colors. I don't know if anybody plays Magic the Gathering, but the Is It League is like my favorite color combination. I don't, but we've got definitely got <laughs> at least one nerd out there who does. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. I am on Twitter at Cockroach, Arles, and Tessa. I am on Twitter at SpacerMace, S P A C E R M A S E. The show is on Twitter at A S A B Pod and at our website where we post show notes and transcripts for every episode, ASABpodcast.com. And until next time, keep on sciencing. <laughs>